If you're standing on a threshold, if you feel a yearning to tap into your greatest potential, but you're caught in that fuzzy in-between space of the now and not yet, don't despair. You're being invited to pivot with greater purpose. You're on the thrilling edge of becoming. You are being called to unleash your soul song. I'm Becky Fleischer, and I believe we're all born with a gift that's uniquely ours, our very own soul song. And I discovered on my own journey that when we unleash it into the world, man, does it make life sing. You might express it through writing, science, cooking, nursing, teaching, or some other endeavor. The song is different for each of us, and its expression can change throughout your life. But it can only sing when you're in tune with your truest self. I know you're trying to get things in focus, that you're looking for encouragement and practical tools to illuminate your own personal journey. And that's what you're going to get here. I'm excited to travel this road with you. Let's get going. Welcome back to another episode of Unleash Your Soul Song. I'm your host, Becky Fleischer. It is so great to be back with you guys. I'm coming at you midway through July, which feels like the midpoint of summer for those of us here on the East Coast. I know that for some people, like my family in Indiana, summer is really kind of almost over. And I really can't imagine that. They go back to school really early at the end of July. In fact, I think they might go back next week. But they do that to accommodate more of this year-round schooling schedule. So instead of having a huge chunk of time off in the summer, they have longer and more breaks during the school year. And, you know, my nieces and nephews seem to like it, as do my friends who are teachers there. So I'm sure there's merit to it, but it just trips me up so much when I hear that they're going back in July because I love July. I love it. I've loved it my whole life, especially as a kid, precisely because There was no school the whole month. It was just endless play dates, bike rides, climbing trees, days at the pool, summer choir, ice pops, sun, sun, and more sun. We always seem to take family vacations in July. And more than a few times during the week, we would hit the YMCA for swimming lessons. Oh, yeah. How many people out there can remember the days at the YMCA? Or maybe you're still hitting the YMCA with your kids. Oh, my gosh. What? amazing memories, learning how to do the dead man's float and learning how to dive off the diving board. Oh, such good memories at the YMCA, except for that dreaded adult swim. Man, when the lifeguards would blow the whistle for adult swim, that was the worst. It was just the absolute worst. I hated getting out of the pool, and it doesn't matter how warm the day seemed to be. We were always freezing when we got out. And even though Adult Swim was probably only like 10 minutes, it felt like an hour. You know, when you're a kid, time just drags, especially when you're wanting to get in the pool. But my favorite memories of Adult Swim time were the days when my dad would leave work early to meet us at the Y, and he would take me in with him during Adult Swim, because if you had an adult with you, you could go in. So my dad would take me in and he would pretend to be a whale and I would ride on his back and he'd go down to the deep end where I couldn't go by myself. And it was kind of scary because I was little and, you know, I didn't swim in the deep end by myself and I was just holding on to him around his shoulders. And we had this thing where he would go under the water and he would take me under the water with him. And it was thrilling and scary because I was not in control of how long we stayed under there. 
actually, I was in control because he would let me gently kind of squeeze around his shoulders, around his neck when I needed to come up, and then he would surface. So, man, just conjuring up summer memories, they're just, just the best. And I have to say that it was only when I was an adult, out of college, working downtown in Indianapolis, where my dad and I both worked, when I realized how hard it must have been for him to get away from work to meet us at the pool for those early afternoon swims. My dad was an attorney, so he had some control over his schedule, but not a whole lot of control. There was a lot to do. He was very busy. He was a successful lawyer, managing partner, so he had a lot of demands on his schedule. And when I was an adult and I realized, man, like, how did he just zip out of there and go swimming with us? I asked him one day, you know, how how'd you do that? And he told me that he would get up really early on the days that he wanted to come meet us at the pool. And he would go into work extra, extra early to get everything done. And it still takes my breath away to think about that. Because he got up so early, he worked a full long day. And then he came and did a very physical activity with his kids to be in the pool, to play, to be a whale, to carry me on his back, you know. Oh, like most sacrifices that parents make, they appropriately go unnoticed by their children. But I was really, really close with my father. We had a really, really special bond. And I got to tell you, I couldn't believe that I never knew. I couldn't believe that I never realized just exactly what it would take for him to leave work early. I just knew that it was my favorite day of the week when he would join us. I bring all of this up because July has always been a firecracker month for me, and it brings up so many memories. You know, it kicks off with the 4th of July, which I loved the fireworks and the pageantry and the fun and the parades and the parties and the family get-togethers and everything that goes around the 4th of July, I adore. And then my birthday is exactly one week after the 4th of July, on the very lucky 7-11. And the next day, July 12th, was my grandparents' anniversary. And I spent a lot of time with them when I was growing up. So I loved, I adored that my birthday and their anniversaries touched on the calendar. I thought that was so special. But what made it even more special was that the very next day, July 13th, is my parents' anniversary. Man, oh man, as a kid, I felt like my birthday set into motion this trifecta of every single thing that was good and right with the world. I loved it. I loved that lineup my entire life. I have just always taken such comfort in it, and there's something about it that has always just fortified me. And then two years ago, another date was added to that runway. July 11th, my birthday. July 12th, my grandparents' anniversary. July 13th, my parents' anniversary. And two years ago on July 14th was the day that my dad left this earth. Wow. You would think that that would put a spoiler on the runway that I loved for so long in July. But it hasn't. Here I'm sitting, actually, two years later, on another day that I love in July. July 20th, which was my dad's birthday. And it's also the day that we ended up burying him. So July's loaded for me. It's even more powerfully loaded for me now that I've gone through that season of my life. And I worried, I'm not going to lie, I worried that July would kind of be spoiled because those things happen then. But I have to be honest with you, I find such serendipitous beauty in them 
that it's almost hard to talk about, and not for sad reasons, but for overwhelmingly beautiful and meaningful reasons. So even though you won't hear this show on July 20th, I just want to make a note that I did record it on July 20th, my dad's birthday. Happy birthday, Dad. And honestly, I didn't really intend to record this. You guys know I've been hanging low this summer, and I've been trying to get episodes out as they feel organic. And there was something about this one that just felt organic. Something inside of me told me that I needed to share this right now, that now just might be the best time to talk about grief and how we can move through it and be moved by it and just how transformative it really can be. I would be surprised if any of you listening out there didn't know the pain of losing someone close to you. It's hard. It ushers you into that liminal space we've talked about before, where you can feel suspended between two realities. Like, really talk about time suspension. When you lose someone close to you or you you get a diagnosis, it really sets a different kind of pace for time. And so you do become suspended between two realities. The reality where the one you loved was here and the reality you can't quite yet even imagine what it would look like now that they're gone and what that means. And the level of intimacy that you had with the person who passed only intensifies that grief and it only pulls you more forcefully through that liminal threshold. And like any liminal space, if you fight the journey, it is hell. It's hell. But if you can somehow surrender... If you can find the faith to plunge into the deep, something incredible happens and you become a different person. Now, I've heard people say that what's most personal is most universal, and I'm trusting that sentiment now because today's show is very personal to me, and yet I know the experience of losing a parent is universal. I'm not alone. When I was thinking about doing this show last year, I really thought about kicking it off on July 20th. In fact, I wanted to kick it off on July 20th to honor my father, to honor his birthday, to honor his life, because really the time around my father's passing was perhaps the most spiritually charged and transformative time of my life. It's the exact thing that I wanted this show to explore, you know, what it looks like to go through a transformative experience. But the reality was that last year, on the one-year anniversary and in the throes of COVID, it was too much. There was no way I could have done it. I wasn't done grieving. If anything, I was grieving more because I couldn't even get home to see my family. I had planned to spend most of July, my favorite month, in Indiana with my family, honoring my father, being there together, marking that year of collective grief together. And I couldn't even go. And so back we go to what I just said about what's most personal is most universal. We all experience grief in our life. And I think that for so many of us, you are probably in a grieving process right now from this pandemic. It's still very much underway. It's still feeling very raw. The ripple effects of what this has done to people, the people we've lost, the things that we have lost, the way of living we have lost, the livelihoods that we have lost. There's so much grief right now that people are holding. 
And if this is how you're feeling right now, I encourage you to really honor your grief and give it the proper space and time to reveal what it's trying to show you. One of the things that helped me through my grief a lot was a quote that I had heard by Paul Tillich, who is widely regarded as one of the most influential theologians of the 20th century. And what he said is that what suffering does is it takes us below the everydayness of life and reminds us we're not who we think we are. It carves beneath what we thought was the basement of our soul. It carves through the floor and reveals a cavity below where we are introduced to ourselves. And that's exactly what losing my dad did to me. I let the floor cave in, and I waited to be caught by something else, something new and something much more substantial. It was the tipping point for me to go fully through the threshold of liminal space that I had already been ushered into and that I was working through and that I've talked about on previous episodes, so I won't go into here. But that further journey to true integration with my soul was beckoning me, and I had been walking my way to the edge of becoming for years before my dad got sick. But it was in the time and space around his death that my connection with my inner wisdom and spirit went from dial-up to fast-speed fiber optic. It was like I was on a spiritual supercharger. It was incredible. And what I wanted to do today was to, to share a few examples with you of what that looked like for me. It would look different for everyone, but this is what it looked like for me. Just a few examples. I don't have time. There's honestly not enough time on this show for me to go into all of them. But here, here are a couple that were really powerful and how they really helped accelerate my spiritual evolution, my transformation into becoming. So when I started listening to the whispers of my soul, I started to notice that whenever I seemed to make a big step or a big step to me, because sometimes they look small, but they feel enormous, right? But every time that I would make one in the direction of what I felt called to, I would see a red bird. They really started showing up in really, really crazy ways as I started to accept the invitation to this liminal space, to this expansion of self, to this alignment with soul, all the things that had started happening years before. I couldn't believe I just kind of started seeing these red birds. Like if I was contemplating something on a walk, I'd see a red bird in a tree. And as I walked down the street, I'm not lying about this, you guys. I'm being very serious. The bird would fly to the next tree near me, and then it would fly to the next tree. You might think I sound crazy, and believe me, I chalked it up to coincidence when it first started happening, but it kept happening, and it kept happening in bigger and bolder ways to the point I could just no longer deny that this red bird really was symbolizing for me that I was on the right path. It was like it was saying, yes, trust this process. Trust the unfolding. Trust that inner voice. Trust that whisper. Trust the unknowing. Trust where this is going to lead you. And so I did. And it kept leading me to things that uncovered more and more of my vitality and more and more of my life force and more and more of my happiness and everything that I've talked about in previous episodes. 
So in her book, Signs, The Secret Language of the Universe, Laura Lynn Jackson says that the universe teaches us that we all have several paths that can take us through life, including our very highest, most fulfilling, most authentic path. All the paths will get us from start to finish, but how we get there, how we make our way through life, depends on the path we choose. And I want to emphasize that point, the path we choose. We can choose to go on the further journey into alignment with our soul's purpose. We can choose to listen to the whispers and act on them to brave going when we don't know where it's going. Or we can choose not to. The choice is ours. But she finishes that sentiment by saying, the universe sends us signs to steer us toward our highest paths. Now, I will get to how I read this book in just a few minutes, but I should note right here that I didn't read that passage until years after I made my spiritual connection with the red bird. I just knew internally, something inside of me just knew that deep knowing that seeing those red birds wasn't a coincidence. I knew they were encouraging my pilgrimage on this path to becoming, this path to the second half of life and the further journey. So my connection to spirit, to the universe, to God, whatever you choose to call it, whatever is accessible to you, it was already getting ironed out. But let me tell you just a few things that happened in the days before and after my father passed that put me on that spiritual supercharger. So I mentioned that my birthday is July 11th, which was a Thursday in 2019. My husband and son and I were heading up to the Adirondacks that weekend to pick up our daughter from sleepaway camp. For those of you who are not familiar, that is in upstate New York. I live down closer to the city. It's about five or six hours away, the Adirondack State Park. And we decided to leave a little early to stop off in Lake George on our way because it's just beautiful. And we thought, oh, I could celebrate my birthday there. But the day before my birthday, my dad got sick with a stomach bug. Nothing phenomenal, just a stomach bug. But he was in the late stages of pulmonary fibrosis which was a stunning diagnosis we had received just three months earlier. And little things like a stomach bug were more taxing on his body than it would be for a healthy person of his age. So he ended up in the hospital. I was really anxious about leaving, about going on this trip, but the doctors kept saying that he would be fine, and he kept saying, and the doctors kept saying, yeah, he, he should go home tomorrow. So we proceeded with our trip. Now, the day after my birthday, I was really uneasy. Because despite what the doctors had said, my dad was heading into his third day in the hospital, and I was heading into the Adirondack State Park, which is notoriously bad for cell service. As in, it pretty much doesn't exist. You kind of have to wait till you get to a hotel, hope they have Wi-Fi, and you can text or do Wi-Fi calling that way. I called up my mom before we headed into the park, and she encouraged me to keep on with our trip she felt good that he was going to be discharged any day now, and though she thought he wouldn't be heading home, he'd be heading to a rehab facility, everybody really thought he was going to be, you know, moving on. So the next day, my parents' anniversary, was the day that we were actually heading into my daughter's camp to pick her up. Now, there is no cell service at that camp at all. It's sitting on a beautiful lake in upstate New York. And to this day, I still don't know how. 
my sister got through to my husband's cell phone as we stood on the dock of the lake. But the call got through, and it was the call I dreaded. My dad had taken a terrible turn for the worse, and the doctors were encouraging everyone to get to the hospital. And here I was, in the middle of the woods, six hours away from my home in New York, two hours away from reliable cell service. I couldn't even begin to start making arrangements to fly home, let alone do anything else. We rushed out of camp, thanking our friends who agreed to bring our daughter home the next day so that she could enjoy the last night of the camp rituals, which I'm glad that we did because as it turned out, who would have known, that was her last year at camp because she didn't get to go back because of COVID. And my husband and my son and I started our journey home. Now, we went back a different way than we had ever gone back in previous years. And to this day, I still don't know why my husband took that route. I barely noticed the scenery, just enough to know that this was not the route we normally took. I was so shaken by the urgency to get back to Indiana as fast as I could, and yet knowing it wouldn't be very fast at all, I was upset. I was mad at myself for going on this trip. I was mad at myself for not being in Indiana. I was mad at myself for being the only daughter that moved so far away that I couldn't get back within a two-hour car ride. I was mad at myself for choosing New York over Indiana as the place to raise my kids for all of these years. I was mad at my husband for taking this random route. I was just so angry. I was so hurt. And I was unable to do anything about any of it. I was stuck in a car that I couldn't make go any faster. Grief's second stage, pain and guilt were pulling me under. And then I happened to look up, and I saw a smokestack, a remnant of an old upstate New York factory, and I lost my breath. I saw inlaid brick forming the letters O-W-D, my dad's initials. His signature for years in his law firm, the wooden letters that sat on his desk, the embossed gold leaf that was stamped on his briefcase, and for a time, the letters on his vanity license plate. It was almost a nickname. O-W-D. On a smokestack of all things. Here was my dad, a long-term smoker who didn't quit soon enough before the damage was done to his lungs, who was, at that moment, losing his life to pulmonary fibrosis. And here was a smokestack with his random initials shooting up into the sky on this random route home. Instantly, I was flooded with just a peace. All that anger, all that rage, all of that hurt just went away because I knew it was a sign that this was exactly where my dad wanted me to be. And I also knew right then and there that I wasn't going to be with him when he passed away. And that was okay, because my dad and I have a bond that neither earthly distance nor death could destroy. He was right there with me in upstate New York, and he always would be. 
Now, he rallied that night for their anniversary. And by the time I got to our home in New York, everyone in Indiana was saying that, you know, maybe I didn't need to come after all. I kept the early morning flight reservation anyway, and I went to bed around 1 a.m. But before I did, I knew I had a knowing that the phone was going to ring before my alarm went off. And it did. Despite the rally that came on for his anniversary dinner with my mom, he was on the downward slope. And this time, they were sure. The doctors didn't think he could hold on until I arrived, and they wanted to see if there was a way I could get there any faster. And I couldn't. My dad knew that I was on my way because he was fully with it the night before, and he felt bad that I was rushing home. And since he knew I was on my way, I told my sisters that someone needed to say out loud to him so that he could hear that he shouldn't hold on for me. That when he was ready to go, he should go. That I loved him and that I would be okay. My sister Susanna delivered that message. And at the point that she delivered it, he was nonverbal. He was really mostly out of it. But he opened his eyes and he looked right at her. And then he closed his eyes and he didn't open them again before he passed. It's hard for me to recount that story, and as a little insight, I have recorded that probably 10 times, so I'm hoping I can get a good edit so I can have it come out smoothly and not with so many um, sniffles and moments of me drying my tears. But, you know, it wouldn't be honest if I didn't say it was hard to recount the story, because it is. But it's part of what happened, you know? It's part of the mystery. It's part of the magic. So that morning, I headed to the airport. He was still living at that point, and I was trying to take my mind off of things. So I did what we all do when we do that. I pulled out Facebook and decided to take a scroll through Facebook. And I got a memory from six years earlier that popped up. And I tell you guys, I never got this memory before. So it was a six-year-old memory. Facebook popped it up for the first time that morning. And it was from a trip that I had taken with my four sisters. And the memory read, As the first of the five boards her flight, I'm reminded of something my dad said to me as a child a long time ago. It's okay to cry when you leave. It just means that you had a great time. And then I closed it by saying I might be a bit misty. Because that was a phrase that my dad would say when he he would get weepy, which would happen because he was a sentimental man. He would say, I'm just a bit misty. (laughs) So six years earlier, I had written that Facebook post, you know, remembering what my dad said, because I was sad to be leaving my sisters after that trip. We had a great time and I was a bit misty, but it blew my mind to get that memory that morning because you guys, I had been thinking about that quote Ever since we got that fatal diagnosis three months earlier, and my tears started falling uncontrollably, (laughs) more than misty, (laughs) like total waterfall, right? And yet again, when I got that Facebook memory, I was overcome with this overwhelmingly beautiful and deeper than I'd ever felt connection with my dad, with spirit guiding me and holding me and letting me know that it was okay to sink into this grief, to let those tears come, 
because it honored what a great time, what a great life, what a great person, right? And so I sank and I sank some more and I sank some more. And when I arrived in Indiana, when my sisters greeted me at baggage claim in tears, I knew he had passed. I knew he had gone. I sank again. And the whole week leading up to his funeral, I just kept sinking. And I sank so deep until the words came for his eulogy that I never knew I had inside of me because they came from a place that I didn't even know existed until I let that floor cave in. That place under the basement of my soul, like Paul Tillich said. And you know what happened? Those words started to lift me up. Sometime in the year or two before my dad got sick, I had heard a podcast with Malcolm Gladwell when he was talking about the loss of his father. I mean, losing my father was not on my radar at that point. It was like not even a close thing that I would ever even think about. But Malcolm was talking about how to keep your parents alive in your heart once they've passed, you know, how to honor their memory. And he was saying that you can't necessarily do it by honoring your parents' beliefs or their way of doing things because we're different people than our parents are. We're born in different eras. We're shaped by different forces. And he argued that what we're obliged to honor in our parents is their principles and the rules by which they live their lives. Now, when I was writing that eulogy for my dad, I had a million large and small and wonderful things to say about my dad, and I could have filled page after page after page with stories like the one about riding on his back in the pool at the YMCA, and I did share a few. But interestingly, those weren't the words that buoyed my soul. Those weren't the words that needed to be said to really honor my dad. The words that lifted me up were those words that came from the space under the basement of my soul when I had to search and make meaning of the essence of this great man's life. And landing in that basement of the soul is why I'm sharing this story with you today on my dad's birthday as my way of honoring him again, but also honoring the grief that started to clear the fog of that liminal space I had been occupying for years. If you would have told me in the years leading up to my dad's passing that this uh, tension, this uncomfortable fog, and this space of unknowing that leaves us so uneasy when we're in liminal space, if someone had told me that grief would help to clear that, I would never have believed them. But more importantly, if someone had told me that the grief I would feel from losing my father would pull me up and out of that liminal space and help me through it, there is no way in hell I ever would have believed you. I was so close to my father. I, I would have assumed it would have devastated me, that it would have pulverized me. And, and I'm not going to lie. At first, it did. I mean, it, we all go through those stages of grief for sure. But when I finally just sunk into it, when I finally went into the grief, it revealed more than I ever could have imagined. It took me to another level. 
And that is what started clearing that fog, that fog that had been hanging over me for years. And what I learned in writing that eulogy for my dad, for digging in, for letting the floor cave in, for carving out that space underneath, for going down there, for free falling into that cavern of grief, was that my dad did what very few people brave to do. He did exactly what we talk about on this show. He took the further journey. He walked through the threshold to the second half of his life where he fully aligned his immeasurable gifts and talents with the calling of his soul. Now for him, that journey took him from a long career as a highly respected and hard-nosed attorney to the thing he desired being almost as much as he desired being a husband and father, and ironically, the calling he had to deny to become a husband and father. He wanted to become an ordained leader in the Catholic Church. And he thought about for a while becoming a priest when he was younger. But instead, he chose marriage and children and family. And then he chose a career that could support that marriage and children and family. So I've mentioned on this show that I grew up Catholic. And even as busy as my dad was with his work, both of my parents were always really, really super involved in the parish. They led small groups and communities. They served on committees. They went to Bible studies. And, you know, I know because my mom told me that my dad struggled at times reconciling the practice of law with the calling of his heart, those whispers from his soul. I think in the first half of his life, he was probably committed, zeroed in. I'm an attorney. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take care of my family. I'm going to do this this way. But later in life, that kind of second half of life threshold moment, I think those whispers started bubbling back up and my dad started listening. 11 years before he passed, so that would have made him 63 years old, and after what I think was five, five years of training, he was ordained in the first class of permanent deacons in the Archdiocese of Indianapolis. For those of you who aren't Catholic, it's basically one step down from being a priest. It's as close as you can get to being a priest as a married man can be. So as I was thinking about it, I realized that as he began to wind down his career as an attorney at the age of 58, right? So he wasn't retired yet. Retirement was on the horizon. There were a lot of ways he could have gone with that because he had a very successful career. He chose to listen to the whispers. He chose to follow the path of his soul. He chose to go on that further journey. So at the age of 58, as he's winding down his career, an officer of the court began the further journey. He started his walk to the edge of becoming and ultimately became a man of the cloth. And for 11 glorious years, he lived in gratifying alignment with his soul's purpose. My dad completed his purpose on his earthly journey. He shared his gifts. He unleashed his soul song in ways he likely never could have anticipated in the demands of his career as an attorney. But he braved to listen to those whispers calling, and he boldly stepped out, broke off, and followed them. Now, to put a fine point on the whole spiritual supercharging thing for me, 
A few weeks after my dad was diagnosed with pulmonary fibrosis, I actually went walking with a friend whose father also passed away from this disease. And she was compassionate, but she didn't sugarcoat it. You know, she was honest that this disease was really a disease that delivered a cruel, cruel and painful death. One where you slowly suffocate as your lungs harden and just slowly stop working. Now, she didn't share that reality to be mean. And in fact, my sister, who is a nurse, shared that reality with me as well. So I I knew it. People weren't sharing that to be mean. Quite the opposite. It's really an act of compassion to kind of fortify me for the road that was ahead. And I really took that as such. But it didn't stop the guttural sobs that overcame me as I drove home from that walk. I feared for him. I feared for his suffering and my own ability to endure his suffering. Because I've never had the ability to endure my dad's suffering, ever. I just couldn't do it. And I was overcome, overwhelmed with this grief and just this uh, paralysis almost about how, how are we going to walk through this? And just as I thought I couldn't bear that grief, that feeling, that dread anymore, a redbird flew down in front of my windshield so close that I had to slam on the brakes not to hit it. And that beautiful connection to my dad and spirit and peace, it washed over me. And I knew we were all going to be okay. Somehow I just knew, come what may, that it was going to be okay. And almost three months to the day after being diagnosed with that disease that promised such a slow and horrible death, my dad died rather quickly from complications from a stomach bug and slipped out of this world on a generous morphine drip. He really didn't have to suffer after all. And neither did I. The universe kept sending me signs, you guys, that really supercharged the connection I have to my inner wisdom and to spirit. Those souped-up connections gave me the ability to trust fall into grief and to let it do its work. It's there to do some work, really important, big, big, heavy work. Grief gave me access to words about my dad's life that lifted me up and helped carry me forward and helped clear my fog. I never could have anticipated that. Never in a million years could have anticipated that that would have been the formula. I could keep going with the signs I've received since my dad has passed. There are so many that keep flying in from spirit in the form of redbirds. But also, there are so many new layers of signs that I know come directly from my dad. But that's a topic for an entirely different show. But suffice it to say, these signs and these inner knowings and connection to spirit, it's powerful. It is plentiful. And it never fails to amaze me with its timing. I'm going to leave you with two that were pretty powerful after my dad passed away. So the night before my dad's funeral mass, we held a memorial service at which one of his fellow deacons read a poem that was beautiful and moving. And before the funeral the next day, my husband went to find him to ask him 
who wrote that poem because I wanted to track down a copy. But the deacon said he didn't know that someone had given him the words in a card at his son's funeral, and he never knew the author or the name of the poem. So I thought to follow up with him in the weeks after the funeral just to get a few lines of the poem so I could Google it, because surely oh, that's, that's all you need to find the source. But I never did. I just I forgot we had other things going on, and it just never crossed my mind to do again. Now, one month to the day of hearing that poem, I cracked open that book I mentioned earlier about signs by Laura Lynn Jackson. A friend had just given it to me, and she told me I should really read it. So I sat down and I opened the book, and there in the opening pages of her book was that poem. One month to the day when I heard it. It's called Death is Nothing at All by Henry Scott Holland, and I highly recommend it if you're grieving the loss of a loved one. It's stunning, beautiful, just so comforting. Now, I had opened that book on a family vacation with my husband's family, one month after burying my father, and I was a wreck. I was still in very, very deep grief. The weekend before, we had cleaned out my father's things from his closet and dresser, and I, I'd found letters and cards that I had written him tucked in with his socks, you know, where you, where you put the things that you want to keep safe for decades. <laughs> I, I couldn't bear the pain. I just couldn't bear the pain of this grief, and I didn't want to ruin the family vacation, but I also knew I couldn't stay. I had to go home, and so I did. It felt horrible to leave, but it also felt like it was the right thing. It felt right to put my grief at the tippy, tippy top of the list of needs that week. It superseded the need to be with my husband's family. It superseded the need to be with my kids. It superseded the need of everything. But of course, on my way home, my inner critic got really loud and told me how horrible I was to leave, how selfish I was to make waves with my husband's family by leaving, how my kids would miss me, you know, all the things. And yet, I kept my wheels pointing home. I drove home. And I kept thinking on that drive how much better I would feel if I would just see a red bird. If spirit could just send a little red bird, you know, to let me know I was on my highest path. But no crimson wings flapped near me. But when I got home, I was greeted with a little gift bag hanging on my front door. It was full of little individually wrapped gifts from one of my most thoughtful friends who was thinking of me at the one-month mark of my dad's passing. Her note was the kind, warm hug that I needed, and I followed her instructions to open just one gift as I needed some encouragement, which I desperately needed at that very moment. I have to put a point on it to say this friend knew nothing about my redbirds. No one knew anything about my redbirds at that point because I felt crazy talking about them <laughs> at that point, so no one knew about them. But I took out one of the little packages, and inside of this tiny package, no bigger than a two-by-two-inch square was a pewter picture frame with two birds at the top and a picture of my dad's smiling face beaming out at me as he sat there in his red sweater. My red bird had appeared. And there was that peaceful reassurance, once again telling me that listening to my inner wisdom had once again put me on my highest path. As I record this episode on July 20th, what would have been my dad's 76th birthday, I honor him 
for being a role model on how to embrace the edge of becoming and how to unleash your soul song. The way he did it doesn't look like the way that I'm doing it. And that's okay. And the way that you're going to do it isn't going to look like the way that I'm doing it. That's okay, too. The lesson we can take here is that it's never too late and it's never too little. The further journey to uncover our soul's purpose awaits us all. It's always there for us to embrace. And if you're going through a period of grieving right now, I hope that you can forge the faith that's necessary to let grieve carve beneath what you think is the basement of your soul and carve through the floor so that you can find the cavity below where you will find yourself. And if you need help, just look for the signs. Thank you all so very much for sharing this time with me today, for allowing me to honor my dad and to share my powerful, overwhelming, beautiful, and complex experience of grief with you. If you are looking for support to tap into your inner wisdom and to supercharge your connection to spirit, I would be honored to help you. I have just completed nearly a year's worth of work and training to become a certified life coach, and I'll be coming at you with some great free opportunities in the near future, but I also have spots for one-on-one coaching, and if that sounds like something that would be appealing to you, I would love to be in that space with you and to support you in every way that I can. You can hop over to my website, The Intune Experience, to get on the waiting list for upcoming programs or to reach out for one-on-one coaching. And if you get on my waiting list, you will be the very first to know when things launch. So you will have all the inside details. So that's it for today, guys. Thanks again for sharing this space with me, for listening to my sniffles. I hope that I edited it out enough so that it was a smooth enough listen. Thanks again. Have a great week. Your Soul Song is recorded and edited in 426 Studios, the music production company that I co-own. For more information about our music and our services, please visit www.four26studios.com. That's www.four26studios.com.